turn then in God's word to that psalm, Psalm 143. 143, as we consider this under the topic this morning of a thirsting soul. This is the last of the seven psalms in Scripture that are known precisely as the penitent psalms, those in which we hear truly a cry out for mercy. That's the flavor of the whole psalm. It doesn't mean it's the only psalms you find that in, but it's it's the tenor, it's the flavor, it's the theme of the psalm in which we hear various psalmists cry out. This one is of David. So uh, as, as we move from here, if you think about it, this is the last cry for mercy. From this point on, the rest of the psalms, as we have considered them, are psalms of praise. So it's a picture of the Christian life not ending in that plea for mercy. But the Christian life is the life of rejoicing. But the life of rejoicing is never found without the penitent plea. Even as we never come to the table and are filled and are satisfied unless we come as those who have humbled themselves before the Lord and and rightly understand the grace that is needed in Christ alone. Psalm 143, Psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. And my heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love For in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life in your righteousness. Bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. As far as the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. This Shall we pray? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, once again, you have given us a great opportunity to open your word, Father. And we just pray for your blessing on the reading of that word this morning. And especially, we ask your blessing on Pastor Bob as he brings the message and uh, explains this passage to us, Father. And we we get so much strength from the psalms that you have given to us. And we just pray that that once again this morning that you will strengthen us, that uh, we, we bring our pleas to you, dear Father. And may this also be an act of worship. All of this in the precious name of our Savior, alone we pray. Amen. Amen. 
look at two main things from the psalm and then thirdly our application to the Lord's table this morning. First of all then, David presents to us a reminder of our sinfulness as we look at verses 1 through 4 and then as we look at the rest of the psalm we'll look at it under a looking to the Lord. So a reminder of our sinfulness, a looking to the Lord and then thirdly a meal from the Lord. This is indeed a, a prayer. It's a prayer for mercy. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. The understanding here is that this is not just David making a one-time effort. This is not just David at one time saying, Lord, you know, I, I really messed up my life. Here's my life, Lord. I plead with you. Forgive me for that which I have done. It's not singling out a one-time sin. Obviously, as we read this psalm, we may be thinking of David's sin with Bathsheba or his murder of Uriah. And we, we might be thinking, well, perhaps David's focused on a singular event of his life, a particular sin that is going on. Actually, in the vocabulary that is being used here, it is the idea of multiple pleas for mercy. It's the idea that this is ongoing, that this is continual, that part of David's life is the pattern of pleading with the Lord for mercy. That David doesn't look at it as being, yep, all I got to do is pray one time for forgiveness of all of my sins, and it's done. David realizes that even as a sinner who is forgiven, he continues to sin. And so is there, there is that ongoing necessity of pleading over and over and over with the Lord for our sins. Now, he's not, we're not dealing here in the sense of his justification. We're dealing more with, his, with the understanding of his sanctification. As David grows in his relationship with the Lord... What happens? He sees his sin more and more. See, sometimes we, we get this point wrong. We, we think that, okay, we, we come to the Lord, we give our life to the Lord, we, we, you know, the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again, we've been justified. Now, therefore, there are no more sins to deal with. Now, Lord willing, the Holy Spirit working in our heart and life, we are sanctified, we are led on that road to holiness. We are certain to be striving to live more and more holy. But the thing of it is, the road of sanctification draws us nearer to God. The nearer we become to God, the more we see His holiness. The more of the holiness of God we see, the more of our own sinfulness. It's as if, you, you know, when you, when you are far away from a source of light, you may look at your clothing and go, well, you know, this looks pretty good. This looks like a pretty good outfit. Some of you perhaps uh, don't have a closet light. And so you pick something out and put it on and you go, well, this looks pretty good. This isn't so bad. Okay, I think I, I look pretty good in this clothing. And then you, you walk out into the bright sunlight and you go, how did I ever put these clothes together? This doesn't match. Or you go, ooh, I didn't see that stain or spot uh, now on, on my shirt. You see, when you get closer to the center of the light or the brightness of the light, things that perhaps were in the dark or shaded 
at one time were not so obvious. But now in the light, their flaws are seen. As we come to the one who is indeed the light of lights, as we come to the one who is holy, as we are drawn into his presence, what happens? We see sin we never saw before. We become aware of things that are in our own hearts. See, that's what David is going through here. He, he's looking at his life and he's saying, Hear my prayer, Lord. Hear my pleas for mercy. Why? Look at verse 2. Because there is no one who can claim righteousness. There is this lack of righteousness. There is lack of holiness. There is a lack of purity. There is a lack of being in the right relationship to the law. As we come to the Lord, the Lord reveals more and more, doesn't he? He opens our eyes to the truth of his word, to the truth of his law. That law then shows us more and more our sin. And what David is saying is, you know, as I live in my relationship with the Lord, what I find out is I'm more guilty than I realized. I'm more sinful than what I thought. There is no way I could ever claim to be righteous in and of myself. There's no way I have reached the standard of perfection that God's word sets before me. It is what Paul is reiterating for us in Romans chapter 3. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. We place before us the summary of the law as Jesus gave us, right? And we are to love the Lord our God with all our mind, soul, heart. All our strength. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Just, just if those were the only two laws, as it were, that, that God gave us in the Word. As we grow closer to the Lord, we come to the, is my mind totally focused on the Lord? Am I loving the Lord with all of my mind? Am I loving the Lord with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength? Now, as I come to the Lord, I find out it's less and less and less. It's less than what I thought it was. I might have thought I was doing pretty good, but in the light of the Lord, in the beauty of His holiness, in that absolute standard of perfection, no one is righteous. None. So what does he do? He pleads for mercy from the Lord, being reminded again that there is no righteousness in his heart. And this leads, as you look at verse 3, to a crushing David's life. That crushing is, is in the sense of, of a spiritual crushing. Now, it might have, uh, it, it might have physical effects. There, there might be physical things that are going on. But, but in essence, he's talking about being crushed by his enemies. You know, it's Satan coming in and reminding us again. See, that's, see as, as he's going through this, he's, he's going through this journey of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. Oh, what a wretch that I am. The good that I would, I do not. And the evil that I would not, that I do. 
And Satan, as our enemy, is right there going, yeah, what a lousy Christian you are. I mean, you are so no good. You are horrible. Don't even try. Don't even lift your eyes to those. See, what David is experiencing is, I'm going through this crushing. Now, what do I do with my crushing? Do I turn to the Lord in a plea of mercy? Do I turn to the Lord asking the Lord to once again remove my sin? Or, Or do I just give up? Do I just turn? See, what Satan wants to do with his crushing is to turn us away. To have us just flee from the Lord. Don't come to that throne of grace. Don't plead for mercy. Just quit. Just quit the Christian life. Just walk away. After all, you're just a no good Christian. You're just despicable. That's Satan. Crushing crushing us mind, souls, our wills. David speaks there, you see in that third verse, for the enemy has pursued my soul. The enemy, Satan, is going after the very soul of David. Satan even uses are rightly discerning the fact that we are unrighteous in the face of God. Satan says, I can use that. (laughs) I can use that. I can use that to crush them. I can use that to destroy them. I can use that to drive them away from the Lord. I can use that to have a darkness come over them that, that they want nothing to do with the Lord anymore. That's what I can do. Verse 4, therefore my spirit faints within me and my heart within me is appalled. It's an interesting word, isn't it? It's David's ultimate confession of depravity. See, what David here is recognizing is that the enemy is indeed pursuing his soul and he has given some thought, some contemplation to that. He's saying, I'm appalled at my own depravity. I'm appalled at my own heart. That here I know the God of mercy. I know the God of reconciling love. I know the God of forgiveness. I have heard the Lord speak through Nathan. You are the man. And I admit I am the man. I have heard the Lord say, your guilt, your sin has been forgiven. But you know what? As sins continue in my life, that Satan, that enemy just continues to crush me and I have actually given thought and contemplation to fleeing from the Lord. I am appalled at my heart. Appalled at my depravity. And in my times of greatest need, It is not the Lord that I have turned to. In my times of greatest need, spiritually, I've sought to work it out myself. I have sought other courses of action. I have sought other remedies. I have sought other ways to satisfy the thirst of my soul. And I am appalled. 
my own heart. That's where David begins the psalm. Why this is known as one of those penitent psalms, it's that honest dealing with our heart. The honest dealing with our soul. It's that grappling. And that's one of the reasons why the psalms are so loved. One of the reasons why the psalms are used so often in devotional material. Because they speak of the reality of our lives. Because I think we'd have to admit, brother and sister, these first four verses, that's not just David, is it? If we're honest, you and I could have written those verses. Particularly as we have given thought to coming to this table. As we have thought of our sin, as we have thought of our unworthiness, as we have come to this table reflecting upon that which God has done, we, we, we are reminded of our unworthiness of this invitation. We are reminded of our own heart that we are appalled. That which we have done, that which we have thought, that which we have spoken, that where our soul is left. The psalm does not end there. Thanks be to God. David now says, I remember the days of old. Where, what does David do at this point, at this, at this point of, of, of confession, at this point of appalling, at this point of recognizing his own sinfulness? He looks to the Lord. And through the rest of the psalm, there are five things that, that David is looking to. One, he looks to the work of the Lord. He, he, he is reminded of that which God has done. He is reminded of God's great feats of power. He is reminded of God's faithfulness to his people. He is reminded of God's saving acts. See, that's what David means when he says here, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. He's thinking, okay, here I am. I am appalled. This is my spiritual state. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. What do I do at this point as the enemy seeks to crush my soul? I look to the Lord and I remember that which the Lord has done. Remember the truths that God has told me in his word. Here I am thinking there, nothing can be done about my horrible situation. I need to remember the power of the Lord. This is the Lord who called creation into existence. This is the Lord who created man out of dust of the earth. This is the Lord who covered the earth with a flood. This is the Lord who brought out his people. This is the Lord who parted the Red Sea. This is the Lord who stopped up the Jordan. This is the Lord who stopped the sun. This is the Lord who delivers his people. I need to remember that, you see. I need to remember that God is faithful to all of his promises. I need to remember that if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us my sins. David, the writer of the psalm, would have to remember the day of atonement, the offering of that sacrifice for the sins of the people and the separating of that scapegoat off into the wilderness so that the words of, I remember your sin no more, 
would become the saving act through which Jesus, through which David is reflecting and thinking about that which God has done, that which pictured for us and symbolized for us the fulfillment of that in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God's saving act. But secondly, it has also created then a thirst. See, rather than driving David away, what has now happened is that David has a thirst. For the Lord. Say, what an odd thing. Most of our society is running away from this Lord. See, if, if you come to the Lord's presence and you find out that the Lord is holy and just, that reveals to you your sinfulness, your ugliness, your horror, the appalling of your heart. What do you do? Well, our society runs the other way. Oh, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to hear about my sin. I don't want to hear about the Lord. I don't want to hear about why Christ shed his blood. I don't want to listen to that. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to go away. David, however, having reflected on that which the Lord has done, instead of running away, now has a thirst. He's saying, I, I know the Lord, and I know what the Lord has done. My soul is thirsting to be with the Lord. Instead of going away from the Lord, David is moving towards the Lord. Because you see, a thirst for the Lord is a desire for the Lord. A thirst for the Lord is a desire to be in a right relationship with the Lord. It's that longing, I want to be with my Savior. I don't want to flee my Savior. I don't want to run away from my Savior. I want to run to my Savior. And, and, and I have this desire, this longing to be satisfied, to be filled by Him. Desire to have one's soul quenched by the living water that the Lord provides. That living water of Christ who provides us with peace, assurance, with love, with acceptance, with security, with faith. We have this longing to have our souls satisfied with Christ. Thirdly, it is a looking to the love of the Lord. Ephesians 3.18, how, how can we ever begin to comprehend the love of the Lord, the height, the depth, the breadth of it? How can we ever begin to imagine okay, the awesomeness, the fu fulfilling of God's love for us in Christ. You see, this is where David is drawn. He's appalled, but what does he do as a believer? As a believer, he turns to the Lord and looks at the work of the Lord, which creates a desire of him in his heart, a thirst, which reminds him of the love that the Lord has, a boundless love for his people. How deep the Father's love for us. That He gives His only Son. See, the problem is most people don't stick around long enough to hear the story, to hear the love. 
So what we want to do in evangelism today is we want to shortchange it and we want to cut out all the sin. We want to cut out the appalling part. We want to cut out verses 1 through 4 and just tell people about the love of God and how wonderful the love of God is. But the love of God is only wonderful when you understand the appalling heart. Grace is only amazing when one understands the depravity, the emptiness one's own heart, else it's just grace. You see, for the believer, as David is reflecting our hearts in this plea for mercy, we stick around long enough. We continue to read we hear God's love. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down in the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for I trust in you. That love on display for us this morning. That faithful love. A love that's always there. A love that nothing can ever separate us from. Not even our appalled heart. A love that overwhelms the depravity of our soul. A love that overflows the thirst that we have. A love that overflows our hearts being appalled. God covers with his love in Christ our sins. David then reflects on the fact of the way of the Lord. Make me to know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. I fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are mine. See, the whole, the whole of the story of salvation is here. Sin. Sin. The salvation in Christ and that service to be rendered. Lord, this, this is now what I desire. Here, Lord, is my prayer. I'm overwhelmed by your love, so Lord, teach me to walk in your way. And you go, well, wait a minute. Isn't walking that way what ended up with you on your knees and being appalled at your heart? Yes, David says, but I want to go there again. I want to go there again. And Lord, teach me, teach me. Is there something else? Is there another crevice? Is there another corner of my heart? Is there another corner of my soul? Is there another stain that I'm not seeing? Lord, shine brightly upon that sin in my heart. You go, well, isn't that going to make you go back to pleading for mercy? Isn't that going to... Yes. But Lord, I desire that. I desire that I might grow in this relationship with you. 
Lord, I don't expect that as I come into your holiness, as I grow now, that you'll go, well, yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, that's fair. No, that's all right. No, Lord, you want me to grow in this holiness. You're going to reveal it more. And Lord, teach me. I desire to do your will. Even though I go through this gut-wrenching thing all over again, Lord, I desire it because that's the way I want to live. I want you to just go, Bob, you're forgiven now. Do whatever you want. David, you're forgiven. Go do what you want. Paul, you're forgiven. Go do what you want. Teach me to do your will. Lastly, the fifth thing that we see here as David looks to the Lord is not only this work of the Lord, the thirst for the Lord, the love of the Lord, the way of the Lord, but he also understands the deliverance of the Lord. Look at these last verses. Think of where we begin in verses 1 through 4. Think of where David was. Now as he has looked to the Lord, see where David ends. And you will destroy... Excuse me, verse 12. And in your steadfast love you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul for I am your servant. What confidence this psalm ends with. What a beautiful statement of faith, of commitment that David offers before us here. This deliverance of the Lord. Think of Job. I mean, Job goes through this this time of of gut-wrenching, soul-wrenching events in his life. Where does it end? I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the last day I shall see Him. Well, that's that's a lot of confidence. How did he get that? If I had clothing that was dirty and stained, what has to happen? Well, it's got to be treated, doesn't it? Then we put it in the washing machine. What happens in that washing machine? Man, there's a lot of tossing and turning. Right? There's a lot of gut-wrenching stuff going on in there. It doesn't just lay in there. God brought Job through all of that gut-wrenching stuff. And where does it end with? I know that my Redeemer. Think of David not only here, but think of David in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Think of it this way as you come to the table this morning. In the presence of Satan, who is seeking to lead you away from the Lord, God prepares a table and says, come. Satan says, flee. God says, come. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember the reference I gave to Paul, Romans chapter 7? Good that I would, I do not the evil that I would not that I do. Who can rescue me from this? Thanks be to God! Who gives us the victory 
through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so as we come to this meal this morning, we are reminded here that it is here that God provides the nourishment that our soul needs. Think of a, a comparison of this way. One of our elders uh, in the last course of, of uh, professions of faith that, that we have heard and been privileged to hear has kind of formulated the question this way. What, what does a, a regular meal do? When you sit down for a meal, many of you are probably headed off to a good Sunday morning meal. What does that meal provide? Well, it satisfies hunger and thirst. There's a delight in your mouth, isn't it? Just tasting some of the food is just, in and of itself, it's just the taste. Oh, that's so good. It satisfies. But it also provides you strength. Meal turned into food that turned into energy to give you the strength. That's what's happening here. God is providing a spiritual meal. And as we come to that meal, it is this meal that makes that palate alive. It's the taste of it. Oh, you say, you mean that juice that sometimes is kind of awful and that bread that's sometimes hard? No, no. Christ. is here, who is present. As we eat and drink, Christ spiritually satisfies that thirst and that hunger. Oh, that, my friends, let that be a joy. That's why we term this a celebration. Because it comes upon our mouth. It's to be a joy and a delight. But also understand that by this, God is spiritually strengthening you. I'm not sure if we converted that little piece of bread and that little cup of juice into energy, what it actually transmit into nutritionally. It's probably very, very, very small. But you know, God is in the habit, as we read his word, of taking that which is small and making it large. That which perhaps nutritionally is very little, spiritually is very much. Eat and drink and joy and be strengthened in Christ. This is what God provides to the thirsty sinner. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that this word will have prepared us now to come to the table to enjoy that which you have given to us in Christ, in whose name we pray and God's people say, Amen.